Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. We have a lot of law to catch you up on today. And we're going to be talking about America, quote unquote, getting back to normal. And unfortunately, it seems like part of what that means is there are now regular mass shootings again. One of my students said this to me, a former student. She said, how do we know America is getting back to normal? Mass shootings are in the news. A terrifically depressing but seemingly accurate statement. So we're going to be talking about whether or not this is finally the moment when we will get gun control legislation. We're going to do an update on federal hate crimes. We're going to turn to a suit by former Congresswoman Katie Hill, a former rising star in the Democratic Party. We're going to be talking about a defamation case against Sidney Powell, former President Trump's attorney. Uh, and one of his counselors uh, during the post-election litigation. And finally, we're going to be talking about the Department of Justice and whether or not they made a big misstep when it comes to their handling of the Capitol insurrection investigation and prosecution. So, Joe, with that, welcome. And you have now the really sad task of updating us on these two mass shootings in one week in America. Indeed, Jessica, dark subject matter to start with, but that's where we will choose to start just the same. Thank you. A pair of tragedies in two different communities in the last week or so. Let's start with the more recent of the two. That event took place in Boulder, Colorado. Now here, a 21-year-old man is accused of walking into a King Supers grocery store in Boulder, Colorado. That's a town which is about 30 miles northwest of Denver. And opening fire with an AR-15-style rifle. That was on Monday, March 22nd at about 2.40 p.m. Mountain Time. The Boulder massacre suspect is Ahmad al-Aliwi Alisa from nearby Arvada, Colorado. Alisa will have his first court appearance on Thursday morning. Alisa had two firearms with him when he was apprehended, one of which had been purchased just six days before the event. Authorities have not yet released a motive for the shooting, although Alisa does have a history of violence, having been found guilty of third-degree assault in 2018 for an incident in which he attacked a classmate at Arvada West High School. Alisa's older brother told CNN that his younger sibling may have been suffering from mental illness and had been bullied when he was in high school. Alisa faces 10 counts of murder and one count of attempted murder. Worthy of note here is that court records indicate that Alisa was born in Syria, he's an American citizen now, in 1999 with his birthday merely three days before the mass shooting at Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado. Now, just six days prior on Tuesday, March 16th, A man killed eight people at three different spas and massage parlors in the Atlanta area. Six of those killed were Asian women, and one other person was also wounded in that massacre. The suspect, 21-year-old Robert Aaron Long of Woodstock, Georgia, told authorities that he was motivated by a sexual addiction associated with his religious beliefs. Despite the racial aspect to his rampage, Long has not been charged with a hate crime in the ongoing investigation. The suspect legally purchased a 9mm handgun just hours before the event, which spanned from 4.50 Eastern Time until he was apprehended on Interstate 75, about 150 miles south of Atlanta, three and a half hours later. The Atlanta killing spree takes place in a period of rising anti-Asian violence during the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, Jessica, with two mass shootings in less than a week after a shutdown lull for the last year, as you mentioned in our opening there, there has been a rise in mass shootings as states begin to reopen, as COVID-19 infection rates began to taper and vaccinations are ramping up. Now, with a Democrat in the White House and a slim Democratic majority in Congress, do you think this is the moment we finally get federal gun control legislation of some kind? 
I really don't. And I hate to say that, but it's in part because of the background you just gave us, which is that one of the shooters here was born right around the time of Columbine. And a number of, I'm certainly not the first person to say this, a number of people have said the Columbine kids are now the bolder parents. And that's a statement on the fact that this has been happening for a long time in America, and we haven't done much about it. You know, Joe, I know that there's an Onion article that you share a lot on social media that says something like, you know, the nation where this happens over and over again says mass shooting totally unpredictable. There was nothing to do about it, which is a satire at its best, right? I mean, this is a tragedy and it's a pr- predictable tragedy. Now, and it is actually a health and safety crisis. So what do I think about legislation? It's really going to take Democrats doing away with the filibuster. We've talked about the filibuster before. The filibuster very simply means that in the Senate, you need 60 votes in order to pass legislation. Why 60? Uh, Because you need a supermajority. And what would that mean in this particular Senate? It would mean that you need all of the Democrats to stay together and you would have to get 10 Republicans. I don't see that happening. So, again, what would you need for legislation? You'd need the filibuster now or you would need to get rid of the filibuster. Now, there's another route here. And President Joe Biden has talked about it a little bit. It would be an executive order. Executive orders are really designed for moments when you can't go through the legislative process because, for instance, there's some emergency. Now, in this case, the legislative process is available, but I would argue it's not working because we still live in a country where the laws don't adequately protect us. Now, President Obama used executive orders when it came to immigration as a way to get around the legislative process, making the argument that, for instance, DACA is a program that had to be accomplished because we were facing um, really a national emergency when it came to what to do with dreamers. I think, again, we're facing a national emergency, and it will be a really extraordinary step if President Biden decides that through executive order he will create more gun control legislation. I think that you know, the moment he signs it, there would be a challenge. And I'm not particularly optimistic that under this particular Supreme Court, um, it would survive legal challenge for the two reasons that I talked about. One is that it would be accomplished through executive order. And two, I think that this is a Supreme Court that is pretty hostile to um, gun control measures. What will be interesting to see, there was just a big decision by the Ninth Circuit upholding Hawaii's gun control measures. And uh, that case is likely destined for the Supreme Court. It will be interesting to see what the court does with that case. It could really tell us where the court is on Second Amendment issues. So the answer, I think, is um, no, we're not going to see any big changes on the federal level anytime soon. And I suppose with that, Jessica, we can set our clocks by the next upcoming mass shooting, which is just over the horizon, as we likely know. Now, that Onion article you mentioned, Jessica, no way to prevent this, says only nation where this regular happens. That has been shared 17 times by The Onion since the May 27th, 2014 shooting at Isla Vista, and that is the UC Santa Barbara shooting. And in a personal note there, one of my former colleagues' daughter was killed in that shooting. So there is a personal face to these shootings. These are human beings we're talking about here. These are not just statistics. And I think it was a matter of time before these kinds of shootings resumed. 
According to research by the Pew Research Center, 3 in 10 Americans own a gun. An additional 11% of Americans live with someone who owns a gun, so that's just in the household. But that leaves 57% of us who don't have guns in our households. As of 2019, 60% of Americans believe that gun laws should be stricter. And what do I think, Jessica? I think that more than anything, I wish that our elected officials would work to make our laws reflect that reality. And as an afterthought, the most stunning statistic in the Pew study was that 44% of Americans personally know someone who has been shot. So let that sink in just a little bit. Now, moving on, Jessica, we mentioned hate crimes in association with the Atlanta shooter. And I know that President Biden has urged Congress to swiftly pass fatal hate crime legislation. Can you tell us how these laws work in practice? Yeah, absolutely. So we do actually have federal hate crime legislation. It's not something that is often used, but it actually was enacted in 1968. President LBJ signed the first hate crime legislation. And since then, lawmakers have approved five different pieces of legislation, and it covers race, sex, religion, and national origin, by which I mean crimes that are committed based on race, sex, religion, and national origin. So I think it's about 15% of cases where there's a situation that is referred to the federal government, where the federal government can make a decision about whether or not to support a federal hate crimes prosecution, that the federal government will say yes let's go ahead with this as a federal hate crime prosecution. And these cases, you ask me, how do these work? These are hard to prove in the sense that you really have to get in somebody's mind. So sometimes you do have that manifesto. Sometimes you have the shooter saying, I really hate, you know, fill in the blank, uh, gay people, transgender people, African-American people, Asian-Americans. So sometimes you have that moment where they just tell you and you don't have to prove it. But a lot of times what you have is more what happened in Georgia, where somebody gives a reason other than race or sex or national origin. And then you have to do a thorough investigation. You have to look at things like what did they say to other people, social media posts, and try and figure out, can you prove beyond a reasonable doubt that this was the motivation for the crime? Now, sometimes these crimes on the state level are not standalone crimes. They're just enhancements. So for instance, you have to prove, of course, that there's the murder. And then separately, you can add on as an enhancement, which means more time in prison, the hate crime. Now, some of the criticism of the hate crimes uh, or charging people under hate crimes is that Look, it's a lot of time. It's a lot of resources. You have to really investigate whether or not the person was motivated to commit this crime as a result of, for instance, sex. And it's hard to prove. So sometimes you can actually lose part of a conviction. And it doesn't always, in practical terms, add to a person's sentence. Because once you've proved, for instance, the homicide, then they're going to be in jail or prison for the rest of their lives. So what's the point in adding that hate crime? Now, I would say the point is if we have these laws, then it's part of our society telling, you know, it's part of our laws basically talking to us about what society we want to live in and saying that if we have these protections in place, we're going to use them. And it's also, I think, very important to communities that are directly impacted to show, look, we know what's going on here. And we're going to take this seriously. So is it symbolic? In many ways it is. 
Could it potentially act as a deterrent? I don't know what the data says. But that's a little bit on, I think, why these aren't typically charged as hate crimes, uh, but why it might be important in some cases really to consider that additional charge. All right. Thank you, Jessica. Now, let's move on to another legal topic. This is a suit by former Congresswoman Katie Hill against her ex-husband, a conservative journalist, and others regarding intimate photographs that were released and ultimately led to her resignation. Can you tell us about the background of this suit? Yes, I can. So a shameless plug, I have an op-ed on msnbc.com that we'll link to on this case. There's basically two different pictures at issue here. One is a picture of Katie Hill uh, almost nude brushing the hair of a paid campaign staffer, a female paid campaign staffer. Uh, And another is a picture of her Again, uh, not fully clothed uh, with a bong, which apparently might have marijuana. And so these are the two photographs at issue. She sued under a California civil code section that says, look, you don't get to distribute intimate images or recordings of people. And so she sued the people that you listed, her ex-husband, who she says is the person who originally had to be the person who originally distributed these photographs because nobody else had them. Uh, She sued this conservative reporter uh, who works for Red State, who was the first one really to widely distribute these photographs. And then she also sued a British tabloid, the Daily Mail, who got the photographs from that same red state reporter and a conservative radio show host. Now, she sued them again under this California law. What's the problem for her? There's three basic problems. One is whether or not the photographs are really intimate under the definition of the statute because, you know, there's kind of a bar across certain portions of her body. So does it really qualify as intimate? But I focus on the second two problems for her. One is that there's an exception in the statute for matters that are within the public interest. And that's really an exception that's there because of the First Amendment, because otherwise we would be censoring media corporations and others who distribute information, even if it's intimate information, if it's in the public's interest. We're very worried in our country about censoring anybody who provides information that the public might have an interest, a legitimate interest in knowing about. The other potential problem for Katie Hill is that you can only punish the people who are the first to distribute the information. So the example I use in the op-ed is that, you know, Angry Andy distributes information, the intimate images, to a few people. Belligerent Bob then finds that information and publicizes it far more widely. Belligerent Bob is off the hook if he doesn't add any additional information because he's just giving further publicity. And that's not going to give liability in this particular situation. So those are the problems for Katie Hill. I mean, if you read the allegations, I have to say, it sounds like she was in a horrible situation with her ex-husband. I'm in no way saying that what happened to her, you know, that we should condone that or that we should try and look away from the allegations. I'm saying under this particular statute, I think she has a very difficult case, particularly with respect to the reporter, uh, the media corporations and the radio show host. Oh, Jessica, I think someone named belligerent Bob lived in my dorm in college. But moving on from that, what are the chances that this suit will be successful? Does she have a chance of winning at all here, you think? 
Uh, I think her best chance is potentially against her ex-husband, again, because you have to look at the person who was the first person to distribute the information because of that belligerent Bob issue. Because if the next person just gives further publicity, then they're not going to be on the hook on this particular statute. So there was a tentative ruling in this case, and it went against Katie Hill, at least with respect to the media defendants. And I think that is the right call. I don't think that they can be found liable under the statute. All right, Jessica, thank you for putting a button on that. Now, moving on to our next suit in our Passing Judgment Tour of Legal Action, let's talk about Sidney Powell. Powell first made the news during Donald Trump's ill-fated and dangerous late-term attempts to undermine the legitimacy of the 2020 election. She is one of Trump's former lawyers, and she's facing a $1.3 billion, and as I like to say, billion with a B, lawsuit from Dominion Voting Systems after losing multiple lawsuits challenging election results. Powell repeatedly made false public claims about election fraud and Dominion, which is responsible for voting equipment used by more than 40 percent of American voters, called her statements wild accusations in their lawsuit. Earlier this week, Powell filed a motion to dismiss the defamation suit. And can you tell us what the strategy of her lawyers is here? I can. So first, let's talk about what defamation is. It means that you make a false statement, a statement of fact, not a statement of opinion, that it's reasonably believable, uh, that it damages someone's reputation, and that the person making the statement, there's different levels here, but basically knows that it is false. Now, in this case, her defense is it's not reasonably believable, that reasonable people would not accept her statements as statements of fact. So believe it or not, her defense is that what she said is not believable. Now, this is actually a common defense to uh, defamation cases. I'm not a defamation case expert, but it is certainly a defense that we hear often, which is, look, this is just hyperbole. I wasn't making a statement like two plus two equals four. I was exaggerating. People would not have thought that this is truly a statement of fact. Um, Now, for Powell, she faces a couple of problems. One is that I think for a lot of people, when they saw those statements, they absolutely thought that she was making a statement of fact. And for a lot of people, it was reasonably believable. This is why there's still a chunk of the American public who thinks that there was massive election fraud. Um, The other thing is that Powell is under some potential questions about whether or not she should still be a member of the bar, for instance, in Michigan. And so by claiming that she made these statements that are not reasonably believable, that reasonable people would not accept her statements as statements of fact, she's also putting herself in some legal jeopardy with respect to her uh, Michigan bar card. So I think she's facing problems. Obviously, this is a huge defamation case. And she's also potentially facing disciplinary action when it comes to her bar membership. And Jessica, it sounds to me as if Powell is taking a page out of the Alex Jones playbook, whose lawyer said in a lawsuit filed by the parents of a child killed during the 2012 Sandy Hook school shooting in Connecticut, that no reasonable person would take him seriously. And I suppose that reasonable provides people with a lot of wiggle room here in the new millennium. Now, before we roll out of here, Jessica, today, finally, some members of the Department of Justice were hauled into federal court this week 
to explain themselves to a federal judge. In a break from the politicization of the Justice Department during the Trump administration, DOJ has reported former acting Washington U.S. Attorney Michael Sherwin to the Office of Professional Responsibility after he gave an unapproved interview with the 60 Minutes program on CBS over the weekend. And then midweek in his court... D.C. District Judge Amit Mehta warned DOJ and the attorneys for 10 defendants in the Oath Keepers Capital insurgency to not talk to the media. He said, quote, the government, quite frankly, in my view, should know better. This case will not be tried in the media. We're not used to hearing that sort of talk in an age when everything seems to play out in the court of public opinion. So, Jessica, what could happen here, legally speaking? Well, that's exactly what the judge said, which is let's not have this play out in the court of public opinion. Let's have this actually play out in court. So, uh, you know, the Department of Justice could potentially face some sanctions and uh, U.S. Attorney Michael Sherwin could potentially face some sanctions. I think what the judge is really saying is I'm watching. You should not have spoken to the press and let's really run a very tight and clean ship here. So I hope that this does not derail the investigation. I suspect it won't, but it was a little additional drama on top of an already very dramatic investigation. And, you know, the indictments, again, are continuing to come in. So this is a very active um, case, and I'm sure that we will be talking about it. And I really, really hope it is the last time that we ever talk about an insurrection on passing judgment. And I think that finalizes our tour of legal updates. There were many, and we suspect there'll be more um, by the end of the week. But I think that gets you up to date, listeners, on everything we wanted you to know about what's happening in the law um, over the last week or so. It surely does, Jessica. I can't thank you enough for taking these tours with me and filling in the blanks in my reading and the things that I read about. Now, before we go, we were talking about drama before. You may have noticed there's been a little drama going around for the last year in the terms of a pandemic. We've got some personal news here, Jessica. You just got your second vaccination earlier this week. Tell me how that went. A pandemic. I've heard of it. Yes. Uh, I'm, aware, I'm aware of the fact that that's happening. So I think we shared on the podcast a couple of weeks ago when I got my first shot and I was extremely grateful. I am covered in Los Angeles as a professor. I'm covered under education. Uh, I did have and continue to have some moments of feeling guilty about that in the sense that I know there are a lot of people who are waiting for their shots and that I've gotten mine and they haven't gotten theirs. Um, but I did uh, wait till I was eligible, of course. Um, and I got my second shot on Monday. I will, to the extent that this changes anybody's mind, the only reason that Joe and I decided to talk about this is I would really say, get the shot. And I had a fairly miserable 24 hours, and it is so much better than the alternative. Uh, there was a New York Times reporter, and she shared this publicly, but she got COVID, uh, she said, exactly a year ago. And she still has uh, lingering symptoms. She's a, quote, long hauler. And we're getting more and more evidence that there are people who have long-term symptoms, even the people who have mild cases. And so my experience was I went to a federal site and it was very surreal because it feels like a military operation because it is a military operation. I got the shot on a Monday morning. By Monday night, I thought, wow, I'm totally going to avoid any sort of side effects. Uh, by Tuesday at about 2 a.m., it was clear that that was not going to be the case. And I had about 24 hours of, you know, that really bad flu feeling. And today... Um, 
I woke up and I felt like, huh, I'm pretty tired and I have a little headache. But I'm so grateful that this was available to me. And again, I mean, one day of feeling really not great and two days of feeling kind of tired, I will take it. And I we have interviewed a number of epidemiologists on the show, maybe more than <laughs> Joe, you would have uh, booked, but I felt very strongly that I wanted to have them on. And they've all said exactly the same thing, which is one, get the shot to get whatever shot is available to you. I was very strong in the feeling that I did not want a vaccine shop. Um, and again, three, that it is so worth it, even if it is a day or two days of not feeling well. And if you really want to figure out whether or not you should get the shot, virtually every medical professional jumped at the opportunity to do so. Um, so I would encourage everyone to do the same. And Joe, I know that you were not um, like me luck in one of those lucky buckets like education, but I sincerely hope that you can feel um, very ill for 24 hours soon. Jessica, I can't wait for side effects, whether they come or not. I am elated to hear that you are over the hump in terms of both of your vaccinations. With every person that passes, it puts us closer to actual herd immunity and getting back to normal, whatever that looks like. I'm glad that your symptoms have passed. I'm glad you've got both vaccinations. And I would second your notion. Every single person who the shot is available to you, please take it at the soonest available opportunity because we all want to get out and give each other hugs again. So thank you, Jessica. Glad that you're on the mend. All right. Thank you, everybody. And we will talk to you soon. We wish you a good day.